You're listening to Hosea the Jealous Love of a Holy God, a Sunday school series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Well, we have been studying the book of Hosea in our series. We're looking at the jealous love of God. And Hosea is a wonderful book found toward the end of the Old Testament. It is the first book of the Minor Prophets. And I don't know if you've seen this before, but I'll give you a really quick way to break down the books of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you start with five books of the law. Then you have 12 books of history. Then you have five books of poetry or wisdom. And then you have five books of major prophets. And then you have 12 books of minor prophets. So that's an easy way to kind of keep all of the Old Testament a little bit organized in your mind. And so Hosea is the first book of the minor prophets. They are minor not because they're less important. It's not because their message was less essential for the people of Israel, but they're minor primarily because they're just a little bit shorter than the major prophets, with the exception of the book of Daniel. And so Hosea was, in fact, not just a minor man. He was an incredible man of God who prophesied to a deaf and blind people for over 40 years. And there's some people that are used to working a job where they don't feel like they're accomplishing a lot, right? But can you imagine working a job day in and day out for 40 years where you felt as though you accomplished absolutely nothing? How difficult would that be? It'd be hard. Hosea was there in Israel when everything went from this prosperity and security and freedom to the depth of poverty and insecurity and bondage. Right? Hosea is there when everything goes from awesome to terrible. And the whole time he's pleading with the, the people of Israel to repent and to turn away because he's saying, this is what's coming. Judgment is coming. And yet they won't listen to him. At the beginning of the book, God's first words to this eager, newly minted prophet is to marry a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Why? Because his people have committed great whoredom. Right? They have gone after other gods. They have changed the true worship of God into something that they had made up themselves. Hosea was an obedient man of God. He finds Gomer, a prostitute, and he makes her his beloved bride. So next time that God asks you to do something hard, ask yourself this question. Is this as difficult as having to marry a prostitute and give up, you know, my dreams for the rest of my life of this sweet marriage and this family and know that, that God has a different plan. That my marriage, my life is going to be this picture and that everything must be surrendered to Him. I think we can always be thankful for what God has called us to. There's a testimony here to the faithfulness of God and the reality of what it's like to have a true relationship with Him. That when you have that kind of relationship with the Creator, nothing else matters. I mean, nothing else matters in comparison. That all of the other relationships are subservient to that relationship. And that's, that's how it's supposed to be. And we see that very so clearly in Hosea's life. And so the first child is Jezreel. And we looked at that. We saw the second child, Loruhama, who is, the word, name itself means no mercy. And he says that God will have no more mercy on the children of Israel. And what a terrible thought will, that would be, that, that Israel would finally get what they have deserved. And what they had deserved for so long. God had had mercy on them for so long. Year after year, sending prophet after prophet. And they would never repent. And now God finally says, I'm going to take away that mercy. 
you are going to receive the just reward for your sin. Um, last week, we spent our time reflecting on the medium of Hosea's third child, Loami, and it means not mine or not my people. Judgment is described in graphic detail, sometimes uncomfortable detail regarding the consequences that God's whoring bride, the nation of Israel, would face. Um, if you listen again to some of the phrases that God uses in his description of judgment, um, it, it, it's truly terrifying. And I think what's interesting about Hosea chapter 2 is that throughout the first, um, well, verses 2 to 13 that speak about judgment, God is saying what he will do. And it's so, it's so harsh. It's so strict. It's so, um, difficult. It, it's uncomfortably graphic in this detail of what God will do. But then you get to verse 14 and you read 14 to 24 and it's still God will, I will do this. I will do this. And what we find there is this, this beautiful message of grace and mercy and redemption. And so God is doing this judgment, but God is also doing this wonderful work of grace. Um, in Hosea chapter 2, verse 3, God says, Lest I strip her naked and set her in the day she was born, and make her as a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. Verse 4, I will not have mercy on her children. Verse 6, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and make a wall that she will not find her pass. Verse 9, will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof and my wine in the season thereof and will recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. Verse 10, I will discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and none shall deliver her out of mine hand. Verse 11, I will cause all mirth, all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. In other words, I will take away this false religion that she's um, brought on. Verse 12 says, I will destroy her vines and her fig trees. He's saying, I will destroy those things that were built with the wages she earned in her prostitution. Verse 13, I will visit her upon her the days of Balaam, meaning I will repay her for her unfaithfulness. So God is so clear here, and the judgment is so disheartening in a way. If you are an Israelite, especially one that believes what Hosea is saying, then this is disturbing to read, right? I mean, you can't read this and feel good about the future. You read this and you know that the God of heaven is going to rain down judgment. And if you read this, it doesn't seem like he's happy. You know, it's not like you read this and you're like, oh yeah, okay, but God is a sweet little grandfather in heaven and he's just going to like, that yes, he's going to like give us a slap on the wrist. No, this seems like total judgment, total difficulty. And so the end of verse 13 is a summary statement of Israel's problems. It says, He went after her lovers and forgot me, saith the Lord. And really that's the summation of, of all of Israel's sin, isn't it? Instead of pursuing God and worshiping God and loving God and giving God the glory that he deserves and, and living for what they were created to do and being light to the world they're supposed to be. Instead of loving God, they loved others. I mean, it's, it's not that, it's not that difficult to break apart their sin, is it? Right? They loved the wrong thing. And so they went after their other lovers and in the process of that and almost, I mean, it's going to happen every time that happens, they forgot the Lord. And so their, their sin is so simple at its core. 
you stopped worshiping God, you worshiped something else, and you forgot God. And that is something we see so clearly in our culture today, and even the lives of some believers today, that I think we, we start, I'm not saying you, I'm not saying this room, but I'm, I think that, that what we see in a lot of Christendom is people worshiping things that aren't God. Hosea is just this clear picture because, I mean, you've, you're finally taking this marriage relationship and you, you can understand the heartbreak that a husband would feel as her wife, his wife was unfaithful over and over and over again. And you see that God experiences that kind of heartbreak. It's, it is, it, it's painful to see. I don't think there's anything you can do that's worse to a, to a married person than have their spouse be unfaithful. And so here we have the end of verse 14. And if, if you are a reader at this time recognizing that this judgment is coming upon you and you realize that it's true, then you are one of two things. You are either curled up in the fetal position or you're standing underneath a table somewhere because you're terrified of what God has just said he's going to do, right? I mean, I'm going to strip her naked and make her as the day she was born and lay her in the wilderness and set her in the dry land and, and slay or kill her with thirst. That's a terrifying thought that God is going to do that to you. And so when verse 14 comes and it starts, therefore, it's terrifying. I mean, what, I mean, what else does he have to say? How can he make this worse? How can God be more strict and more harsh than he already has seemed to be? And that's what's amazing about verse 14. Um, he's given this sweeping condemnation of Israel in the most certain terms. The tone has seemed almost angry. God has been personally slighted. His, his heart has been broken by Israel's unfaithfulness. And now it seems like he's re- responding. And it seems like, in a sense, he's responding in kind. I mean, he's responding with the, this heartbreak. The lesson this week is called Unexpected and Inexplicable Grace of God. And we see in verse 14, this grace introduced. It says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably to her. What he says is, behold, therefore, what I'm going to do, I'm going to allure or entice or flatter her. This is the word that you would use to describe what a young man is doing to try and win the affections of a young lady. I'm going to allure her. I'm going to try to entice her and flatter her and make her feel loved and and bring her back into a loving relationship with me. Um, What is God saying here? I mean, he says that he's going to lure her and it just doesn't fit everything that he said so far. And you wonder, does that mean he's negating everything he just said? Does that mean that all the judgment is just, is just done? It's, it's like this, like second personality just came out in God. That we've seen his judgment and all of a sudden, behold, therefore, well, I'm going to allure her, right? Where did that come from? What is he now saying? I think what he's saying is that God will judge Israel as promised. But someday, when they least expect it, he will attempt to win her back. And that's the storyline of the Bible, isn't it? I mean, the sin of of God's people have um, deserved, have earned the wrath of God. And yet God found a way to win his people back. And that's exactly what he's saying he's going to do. He's going to bring her into the wilderness. And the first time we heard about wilderness, it seemed like a very negative thing. But you remember when the children of Israel came into the wilderness? Back in Exodus? 
It was after they were freed, right? And so after, after they were freed from bondage, he says he's going to lure her and now he's going to bring her in the wilderness. And I think it's, this is, it's just like flashback to God leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, that there is a time that they go through into the wilderness. And what I think is so wonderful about the book of Hosea is that right beside each other, you get the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, and you get this unbelievable love of God and grace and mercy. And, and it's like in this book, you're trying to figure out how those things coexist. But they do. They exist in God. And so I think what we see at the cross is we see the answer to all of this mystery. How does the justice and righteousness of, and holiness of God coexist with the love and grace and mercy of God? And we see his wrath and his um, hatred of sin poured out on the head of Christ. His anger toward all sin poured out on Christ. And at the same time, we see his unbelievable love for sinners in that Christ is on the cross. It, it's, it's justice and mercy. The old dichotomies. It's a great, it's a great song. It's a great song. Thank yeah. you. Um, but, you know, some people have this idea, oh, God, is so human. But what you just described, and Eric said earlier, those are the emotions of every married couple. Mm-hmm. And so when we act as if God is so unjust and he's so angry, we would do the same thing mm-hmm. as far as the betrayal. Yeah, absolutely. We would respond the same way in his anger and his... But how many, how many husbands would go out and die for the bride that just did that to him in order to restore them. That's crazy. That thought is, it, it really is mind-blowing that the perfect husband who's never done anything wrong and only ever been the perfect husband and has, has put up for years and years and decades with this unfaithful wife who is just so committed to, to their sin. And now God is willing to die for that bride? It doesn't make any sense. You know, the interesting thing is that I know a lot of Christian wives that have done that for perfect husbands. You know, um, yeah. Wives are better at it than husbands? Well, yeah. I, I, that, that could very well be. There's a lot of grace there where yeah. there was cool husband. Right. And and there are certainly stories where they have. I mean, I'm not saying that, but I think that a lot of that is God giving this incredible strength. And and I think in order to be able to do that, you need to to truly understand the gospel that that has been done for you, you know, in such a greater way because God never sinned, right? You you'd only done the wrong. And so he says he will take her to the wilderness, and what will he do there? He will speak comfortably to her. It means to speak in a friendly manner, or to speak softly, or to speak from the heart. This is this picture of like, therefore, and you're expecting like the hammer to fall once again. And instead he says, I'm going to allure her, I'm going to entice her into the wilderness, I'm going to speak softly, in a friendly way, in a loving way from my heart to her. This is what God's doing. And I'm sorry. Yeah. That wilderness field too was provision for them. Yeah. That God showed up in a real way for his children in the wilderness. Absolutely. So the flashback would not only be freedom there, yep. but provision by the God of heaven. Yep. Yeah. Um, it, it actually, like the, when you think of what the wilderness did, it really, it, it kind of purified them. And it brought them, it got them ready to come into the promised land properly. Right? And, and that's what he's saying he's doing. And what we're going to see is part of judgment was God taking those things away, but part of this restoration 
is God giving those things back. And we'll see that in just a couple of verses. And so what does it look like when God speaks comfortably with his people? In Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 35, Ezekiel is speaking about the same type of thing. He says, I will bring you into to the wilderness of the people, and there will I plead with you face to face. Um, what does that look like? And I think we know what it looks like. I think it looks like something like, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. Doesn't that sound like a God who is in pursuit, who is speaking in a friendly um, way from the heart, who is in a loving manner calling his children back? Come unto me, right? What an incredible soft thing to say. Um, how about John chapter 8, verse 11, when he's speaking to the woman who's caught in the act of adultery, right? And, and there's such a parallel to, to this whole thing that she's, she's being unfaithful and all of her accusers leave. And she says, Lord, will you accuse me? And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. I feel like that's a way of speaking comfortably to someone who is in Israel's situation. How about John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That is what this looks like. And all of these promises of bringing her back and speaking, they all happened, right? It's such an incredible fulfillment. Verse number 15. And I will give her vineyards from thence, and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there in the days of her youth as in the days when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And what he's saying is, I'm going to give her vineyards from thence. And that's a, signifying what Sam just talked about, that he would return everything that had been taken from her. Every part of the judgment, I will take away your corn, your, your wine, your flax, your vines, your fig trees. And now he says, I'm going to give her those vineyards back. Okay, everything that she once had will be hers. Everything that's mine is hers. Um, and this time she will know where they came from. He says that the valley of Achor will be a door of hope. And the valley of Achor literally means the valley of trouble. And if you know the story back in the book of Judges, there's a man named Achan. And Achan is in love with beautiful clothing. He's in love with silver. He's in love with gold. So much so that when God tells the children of Israel to leave those things and to not touch them themselves, he goes in when nobody's looking and he takes the spoils and he hides them under his tent. He takes the garments, he takes the silver, he takes the gold. And now the children of Israel go to A to war. And when they go there, what happens? They're defeated. 36 men die. And they come back and, and, and Joshua is, God, what happened? What's going on? He says, there's sin in your camp. Like there, there's sin present there. And eventually it gets down to that it's Achan. That Achan is, has loved those things and, and truly loved those things more than he loved God. Right? That, I mean, that's, that's the, the ultimate explanation of sin. And so here, here we have this tragic story. And because of that story, that valley was called the Valley of Achor or the valley of trouble. And you think of that thing that is so terrible and so awful, and this example of sin being punished so severely, and now he says the valley of trouble will be a door of hope. And it's this reversal, 
Um, there's a song that's written by Jason Gray, and it's called "Everything Sad Is Coming Untrue," and it's it, it is a great song. It's a great song to think about the fact that someday the wrong will be made right. And and the verse goes toward the end of the song: "The winter can make us wonder if spring was ever true." And and I kind of wonder here if they go through this judgment, and they want is God good? I mean, is there really any hope? But every winter breaks upon the Easter lilies bloom. And even for us, thinking of it that way, I mean, I know that it's part of our part of the country, but this, this whole thought of like Easter in a way signifies that, that summer, that spring is coming, that the flowers are, I mean, that's, this is where we get to when Christ arises in, in, in our hemisphere. Every winter breaks upon the Easter lilies bloom. Could it be that everything sad is coming untrue. Could you believe everything sad is coming untrue? Broken hearts are being unbroken. Bitter words are being unspoken. The curse is undone. The veil is parted. The garden gate will be left unguarded. Could it be true that everything sad is coming untrue? Oh, I believe everything sad is coming untrue in the hands of the one who is making all things new. And that's, that is what's happening here. The valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, is now this door of hope. And the, the um, description of what his bride will be doing, that she'll be dancing and running in the days of her youth, it's like there's no more weight. There's no more guilt. It's not like God welcomes her back, but with all of these conditions. It's God has welcomed her back, and there's just freedom and liberty and joy and peace. Right? I mean, I can imagine if a husband gets the courage up and the ability up, to welcome his wife back into his home, there's still going to be that hanging over their relationship for a long time. And yet this is a picture of, of freedom. It's amazing. It, it's, not, it's not the different God in the Old Testament, the New Testament. It, it's this, the whole story woven throughout. So verse number 16. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ish, Ishi, and shall no more Beali. Okay? trying to say those the way that they told me to, but I don't know if I got it right. Jordan knows, but it's okay, Jordan. Just let everybody believe I got it right. They shall call me Ishi and shall no more call me Baali. And what he's saying there is Ishi is husband. It means husband. They will call me husband and no more Baali. And the the idea of that is, well, there's, there's actually two ways of understanding that. The first one is that they will no more call me master or lord. And that's, that's what that word means, Bali. That they, they will call me husband. And so speaking of, there is this going to be this closeness that they'll have. But what happened is Israel had now, I mean, they had, they had gone off. They adopted some of the practices of the gods that were around them. One of the, the primary gods that were worshipped in that time was Baal. And so um, they would, rather than calling, you know, rather than worshiping Baal directly, which I think they, they eventually did, but rather than worshiping Baal directly, they might say, well, I'm worshiping my Baal, my Lord. And so they had adopted God's name and kind of changed it a little bit. And I think what's happening is there's, he's saying, we're going to be restored to what it's supposed to be, this, this closeness and this intimacy, this, this husband and wife relationship, not this my Baali, which you're, you're bringing in like all of this falseness in with what's true and what's right. Okay, it's going to be this pure worship of God. Yeah. So, each is the word for man. So in Hebrew, they use that man has the same word. Yeah. The prefix e on the end means my. So each means my husband. Yep. And Baal doesn't necessarily mean it's God, but 
God was supposed yep. to be Israel's well or husband and master. Right. But they chose to, to have a master of the Canaanite God. Yeah. Well. So it's not necessarily a bad name, it just means master or husband. Right. They chose that, that master instead of their, their true husband. Yeah. 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 So it's not necessarily a bad name at all. Right. Means husband and master. Right. Like sort of the text they always use the word ball and it doesn't mean it's bad. Right. But but the the um, false god was also Baal, right? Which yeah. is kind of pointing toward the, the same thing. And so what I think might have happened with Israel is that they they adopted some of the practices of the worship of Baal, but then they tried to to um, Judaize it, if you want to say that, where they were like, oh, it's my Baal. So so kind of like in, you're right that it's not a bad term for God in the first place unless you're you're using it the wrong way. Yeah, so you're giving the term that was meant for Yahweh for yep. Paul, and they're taking it and giving it to the king of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you see that with the worship of the golden calf. Yeah, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. Wasn't, yep. Yeah. Wasn't, they were trying to recognize the God who brought them out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a, that's a great example, analogy of, of this. It's the same kind of thing happening. And so it's not that Israel is just like all of a sudden doing a 180 and saying, well, I'm not worshiping this God. I'm worshiping this God. What Israel's doing is saying, I like some of this too. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try and marry these things. I'm going to try and bring them together. And what God is saying, it's no, we're going to get rid of all that part. Even that name that, that could be good if it was used properly, we're going to get rid of that name. You're going to be just my, you're going to call me your husband which is this pure idea of just me and you, right? So it's really neat how God did that. Verse number 17. For I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And this is again saying that God will do this. I will remove the false gods from their lips. And the idea of the false gods being on their lips is is their worship, their praise, I will take them out of their lips, and they will no more be remembered, right? I'm going to take them out of their minds. I'm going to take away the desire for those things. And can't you wait for the the day that you don't have the desire for the evil that we have still? I think that's the most frustrating thing of being a Christian still alive on this earth, is still battling those those old battles that you hate and you wish you didn't anymore. And someday they will be completely gone. Uh, We'll go verse 18. No, we won't. Yeah, we will. Verse 18. He says, And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground, and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, and I will make them to lie down safely. He says, I will make a covenant. Right? I will make this new covenant. And you notice what the new covenant is and, and who it's with? This new covenant is speaking about the, the redemption of all creation, right? The reversal of the curse. It almost seems strange that he's going to make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls there and with the creeper. Why, why is he making a covenant for them with all of the rest of the living things? Well, do you remember when the curse fell? It affected all of creation. And, and what he's saying here is he's going to make this new covenant that will somehow positively affect all of creation. That somehow it will bring humankind back in right relationship with the rest of, of created order. Right? And that was what fell. That's what happened in the beginning. Everything that was supposed to be for man, that man was supposed to have right command over, now fights against it. We have weeds. We have difficulty. There's death. There's killing. We have to kill animals to eat. 
I mean, I know you don't have to, but most people do. Um, and he's saying he's going to take away the bow and the sword and the battle. He's t- going to take away the killing instruments. And that's part of this new, this new covenant. There's some people here that love guns and they probably don't like that verse. Um, um, but he doesn't say he's going to take away guns. He, I mean, you're going to have your second amendment still. You're just, just yes. swords and bows. Bows. When Peter had the vision of the animals coming down in the sheet and was creepy and things, yep. that's what I mean, clean is clean. Yep. And that caused the gospel to go to the Gentiles mm-hmm. at the start. Mm-hmm. Could that, could this be a, you know, a shadow of what was coming? Yeah. It could be. I think that this is pointing even further into the distance. I think that this is what this is pointing toward is the day when Christ comes back and he brings a new heaven and a new earth. And that, that he, I mean, the, the Bible doesn't say that we're going to have all new things. It, the Bible says that all things will be made new, right? And so the idea is that creation will be as it was supposed to be, as it was intended to be. And so I think that that's what this is pointing toward. I'll give you one more verse and we'll finish. Jeremiah chapter 31 verses um, 31 to 34. And here we see that God in Hosea is pictured as the mediator between Israel and the rest of creation or, or human beings and all of creation. God is the mediator, right? He mediates a new covenant between them. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days will come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I have made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke. Although I was a husband to them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. I will write it in their hearts and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know, they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And so he explains he is going to be making this new covenant and in this new covenant, they will, we will know him. We will be his people. There'll be just this, this intimacy that has been lost. He says that they will lie down safely. And that's this picture of security. And do you know that true security can only happen when there is no chance of peril in the future? When, 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 there is, when there is the possibility that the doctor's appointment will have bad news, right? When, when there is this, the possibility that you'll lose your job. When there's a possibility that something bad will happen, then there's no true security. And what I think is is amazing about this verse to think about that part of this new covenant that's coming in is that there's going to be a day when you never have to dread. You never have to worry. You never have to wonder what the future holds. It's never like, what's the results going to say, right? Am I going to have my job? Am I going to pay my bills? Are my kids going to be okay? Like, There's not this worry in the future. And that's the security that's being spoken of. I think what God wants us to do is to recognize how incredible this new covenant that he's made with us is, right? That he makes all things new, that there's this restored relationship with creation as it was supposed to be, and that that we will all lie down safely or securely and never worry anymore.
Um, there's some verses in Isaiah chapter 11. So if you want to read those, Isaiah 11, 6 to 11, this is a, a gr- beautiful picture of what that will look like, what the new creation, new heaven and earth will look like, and, and how there will be restoration between humanity and the rest of creation. And so if you want to read that, go for it. Thank you for coming today.